Burl Bearer. I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Live from the gleaming state-of-the-art, streamlined studios of Outlaw Radio USA, nestled in our secret bunker somewhere in the Los Angeles area, the following program is produced by the affable, laughable, magic Matt Allen on the Outlaw Radio Network. True crime uncensored, I am the legendary Burl Bear. Raised on records, born to rock and roll. And out of his frickin' mind. And out of his frickin' mind. Thank you for that parenthetical expression. <laughs> also with us is, um, what's his name? Howard Peters. Oh, thank you. Uh, the manager of the star, what, 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 what pisses me off. Oh, we don't care. Yes, uh, no, Mark no, no, we, we, Boyer, we do, we do care. Because I've introduced him two, three times already. I started the show because you weren't here. I was outside. Uh, we don't care we don't where care you were. about that. But Let's you weren't here. Guests. We will talk about our guests in a second because our guests put up with all the crap of you well, being he's late. he's going to get more crap for the next hour once he gets on the air. We'll get him on the air. He's famous, you know. I, that I know. Yep. He's internationally famous. Well, let's, not go, let's not push it. Well, no, he is. Is he, he, stayed, is he, he known he, in the Netherlands? He stayed, he, stra- he, he stayed up extraordinarily <laughs> late for this lunacy. Well, it's 10 o'clock in London. That's where you call him from London, uh, Richard? He didn't hang up, did he? Hey, Richard! I'm here. Oh, there he is. <laughs> He's not so sure no. he wants anything to do with us now. I don't blame him. Uh, I don't want anything to do we with We have us. decided you're internationally famous, uh, Richard Godwin. I got a message from GM Ford, not the car manufacturer, but the famous private eye author, oh, man. who wanted to know if I had read uh, your book, One Lost Summer which I have not read, although I did read uh, the new one, The Savage Highway, that's coming out. And he says it is seriously one of the creepiest books he's ever read in his entire life, and he absolutely loved it. So at least you're, well, that's fine. you're, you're famous with uh, GM Ford. Now, Richard, 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 you've had a taste. I don't know if you've been listening before the show actually started, but you kind of have a taste of what you're in for. And, and what, oh, you, yeah. what you stayed up so late for. It's so late. On the other side. The guy of the who park. writes this kind of stuff doesn't go to bed at 7. It, it, sounds, it sounds like you guys should have been in the Mothers of Invention with Frank Zappa. <laughs> God bless you for saying that. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I've stayed in 200 motels. Whoa. Oh, yeah. I, I bet you have. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, the guy who steals the towels in that movie. Uh, uh, you changed the towels? <laughs> He steals the towels in the movie, in the cartoon. 200 Motels, Frank Zappa. He's a friend of mine. So there. Oh, he's great. I like Zappa Frank Frank Zappa was a very good friend of mine. See what a small world is? Seriously? Yes. I I love Zappa. Let's let's pick out a very good, but good. Did a a few tours with him. But let's move on, though. Okay. Anyway, so those of you who are not familiar with Richard Godwin, and you will be uh, by the time this program is over, uh, he's author of critically acclaimed novels such as Apostle Rising and Glamour, One Lost Summer, North City, Meaningful Conventions, Conversations, rather, Confessions of a Hitman, and his new one, which I just read, which is coming out at any moment, called Savage Highway, is one of the most delightfully perverse books I've read in a long time. I couldn't wait to get Richard on. This is, he's so different than the normal... He's not normal. <laughs> well, that's, that's, that's what my is point. Normal? There is no normal. What is normal? Kinsey said, there is no normal, there's just what you enjoy. Right. Mm. Exactly. I mean, um, we are, we're living in the age of conditioning, are we not, gentlemen? Um, 
Um, perverse should be distinguished from perverted, for those of you who do not have a dictionary out there. Perverse means going in the opposite direction. Well, some people go in two directions at once. Well, that's, that's because I'm dyslexic, but that's another story. Did you just do? You just did the dyslexic joke. Did you just do me doing the dyslexic joke? No. No, we'll be doing a quadraphonic joke later. (laughs) Meanwhile, didn't mean to interrupt you there, Richard. (laughs) Now, okay, we were prior to the show. uh, Mark C. G. Boyer and I were discussing you and my nephew Todd Goldberg, with whom you share some similarities. Who is your nephew, Todd Goldberg? Todd, you should read Todd Goldberg's books. They're they're really sick. Okay. You mean thicker than the government? Yeah. Well, there you go. What happens is... Is that possible? Yes. Every every two or three weeks, he comes on here and drops the name of his nephew, Todd Goldberg. None of us even know or have a clue as to who Todd is. Todd's been on the show. He's made him up, hasn't he? Yeah. Yeah. No, Todd has been on the show with Rabbi Borovitz, remember? Yeah, I wasn't here that day. Oh, you weren't here that day. That's, That's right. why I don't remember. Ah. His brother, Lee Goldberg, is also a best-selling author. Again with the Goldbergs. Well, they're my nephews, no, and they're best You know, author. Matthew Lee. There's a Matthew Lee Goldberg I interviewed, who's a New Yorker. He's written uh, some quite good books. There's another uh, Lee Goldberg. Yes, Lee Goldberg, who currently writes uh, books with Janet Ivanovich, so it means he has all these New York Times okay. bestsellers ah. I can grab. He doesn't about. do anything with Stephanie Plum, does he? I have no idea. He does all sorts of strange things. Anyway, uh, we were asking, uh, my brother and I were talking about this, and, and Todd, uh, it's probably similar to you, was a nice guy, bubbly personality, rather amusing, and yet he could write these books that are, you know, strange, twisted, very, very dark things. And uh, I asked him why. And he said, because that's the kind of stuff he liked when he was a kid. Is it the same with you? I mean, the kind of stuff you write is, you know, it's like a Twilight Zone marathon on acid. Uh. Well, okay, yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I, I actually did like Roald Dahl. I don't know if you know Roald Dahl's, not his children's stuff, but his kind of twisted stories as a teenager. They were very macabre. But uh, it's not the only thing I write. I do write satire but i'm best known for what you're reading and the reason i like it is because i think it engages with the underbelly of society because i think that we live in an age where we're programmed to like things you know you're on facebook and you've got to like this and you've got to love that and you know sometimes i think we're being culturally engineered here to sort of turn into a sort of clone of what could be easily replicated as the future voter and it's like vote for me and the perverseness, as opposed to perversity in my writings, is going in the opposite direction. It's what Marshall McLuhan talked about in terms of creating an anti-environment. You know, a fish doesn't know it's in water. You have to get out of the environment, which means you have to create something alternative to analyze what we're living in. And I think we're living in the ultimate age of conformity. For all the choices and all the freedoms, I think we are being cloned. And that I, that I find far more frightening than anything I've ever written. Are you familiar with the motion picture uh, Privilege? I am not, sir. No. Look that one up. Because that I is, will do. That, is, uh, that plays right along with what you're talking about. It's a film for how long ago was that movie out? How would you remember that one, don't you? Seven minutes. And seven, it was out seven minutes ago? Yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, by, by, by the way, Richard, careful calling him sir. 
<laughs> I haven't been knighted yet. <laughs> because we'll have to live with that for a while. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it's hard enough getting us to the door. What does he do to you, seriously? <laughs> uh, I'm difficult to live with uh, under any circumstances. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you'll like, you'll okay. like that one. Is that, who's in that one? Is that Julie Christie's in that? Some good-looking woman. Julie Christie. Yeah. And uh, who plays the pop star? Do you remember? David Bowie. No, it's not David Bowie. I wish it were. Yeah. yeah. Okay, we know you write very dark stuff. Uh, why? Uh, I know I write very dark stuff. I think it's about catharsis. It's like you get it out of your system and somehow you leap into the other side of yourself. You know, it's like angry people who can't express their anger, who can't say, look, I'm totally, utterly pissed off with you, you're driving me nuts. They become very depressed. It's like if you keep it in, this is what William Blake believed, if you keep an energy inside yourself, you oppress it, it starts to devour you. So you have to express it in some form. Um, uh, so I suspect that catharsizing any energy will release you from it and allow you to be free to express other parts of your personality. So how does that apply to you directly? Is that, you'd be directly? I think that I think. Well, I, the thing is, I don't only write the stuff, but I'm known for writing this stuff. I think that we do live in, you know, we do live in dark times. There are, yeah, there's a lot of really nasty stuff happening out there. My first novel, Apostle Rising, I was telling a pregnant woman today in a shop who was serving me when I was buying a shirt, she wanted to read something by me, is um, really about a very lovely serial killer who's crucifying politicians. And many notes written to me saying, well, I hate politicians too, and I love this killer who's still on the run. Um, it's, it's slightly creepy, but, you know, it's sort of kiddie stuff, really. Um, I, I kid you. Um, Mr. Glamour, number two, is um, borderline horror. One Lost Summer, which I think is, is not that creepy. Not that creepy. Um, it's more psychological. And then there was the erotica one, which I was asked to write by Italy. So, no, not creepy. Confessions of a Hitman, not. Meaningful Conversations is satire. Paranoia in the Destiny program is sci-fi. Wrong Crowd is just hard-boiled. The one that's out newly in the last day, Savage Highway, is. You've read it. And um, I'm going to have about seven more published this year. Prolific. Go ahead, uh, Did you say, why am I so prolific? You have no life? No, I just write fast. I don't consider writing work. I used to work. I worked for a number of different companies and places, and writing is a joy. And I, luckily, I get up early, and um, after a spot at the gym and uh, donning my Speedo <laughs> goggles, I <laughs> sit at my desk and churn out the words and then deal with other matters. You know, you know that, that ties in really lovely with that conversation I was having with my 16-year-old son last night. And and, and, it, and I was trying to give him some fatherly advice, and, and, and basically he's all set on what he wants to do and what he loves to do, and he's going to go do that. And, and uh, that is, in fact, become a first responder fireman and, and, and take his life that way, and that's fine. Well, but I told him, I told him, I said, that's good that you got that and that you feel that way about it, and he does work for the L.A. Fire Department. And I, I, I said, okay. The the advice is this, and it and it just echoes everything you just said. And I'm going to tell him we spoke today. Um, basically, I said find something that you absolutely love to do, and get people yeah. to pay you for it. Right. We're, that's you, it. That's it. That's the secret of life. By the way, that's why that's I was absolutely. a male escort when I was younger. Exactly. Absolutely. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, nope. 
absolutely. You know, so many people I know are in jobs that they're okay or they hate, which I I think is soul destroying. Yeah. Um, and I think that if you really, I get up each morning looking forward to getting to my desk, you know, and it's only at the end of the corridor, so or in the hotel or wherever <laughs> I'm staying or in the states at a place in the states, and that's great. There's nothing really I don't like about what <clears> I do. Sometimes I travel a lot, and yeah, it's a drag doing security checking at the airport, and sometimes marketing can be a slog, but really I can't complain. There you go. So, I mean, so it's, not totally... like it's not like we're lifting heavy things. No, 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 no exactly. we're not digging ditches. Like the, like, like the, we're not so, mo- making motorways. No, exactly, no, yeah. No. Uh, yeah, no. Burrell knows everything there is to know about the book we're talking about. I don't. Uh, and then I decide whether I buy the book somewhere in the middle of the interview. Uh, okay. And we've, we've been having fun with that. So let, can we do this? Can we talk about Savage Highway? I would love to hear more about it. Well, well Richard, being as you wrote the book, what came first? The decapitation of the plot. All right, well... I'll tell you actually what came first. It's funny. It started as a story. I wrote that as a short story, and I thought, yeah, this is pretty good. And I like this character, Patty. And I wonder if I could make this longer. And it turned from 1,000 words into 64,000 words. It was very interesting. It's the only time I've ever done that. So I'd written this story about a drifter in a cafe being confronted by a man who offers her a ride and claims there's a maniac trucker on the loose. And then someone dies, and you go, hmm, what happened? And I thought, this is interesting. There's a lot of meat here. And I just developed it, and I wrote it from there. And I didn't do, I'm not a heavy outliner. I know there are some no. people like Ken Follett, who's a heavy outliner. He will research, he will know what his female characters are wearing, what perfume they're oh, wearing. Yeah. I would be bored by the time to write yeah. it. Yeah. I, I do I do outlining, I do plan, but I tend to plan two chapters ahead because I find that by chapter two I'm changing it, so mm. it will offset everything. And I, I wrote it and I did a couple of drafts, did the edits and then I sent it off and went through my agent um, to uh, Wild Blue Press. So it's, it is a dark book, admittedly, but it is also about law enforcement and justice and the frontier and how the frontier still endures in the American psyche. Um, and, you know, also there is a part of Mexico where women are disappearing um, over the borders from El Paso. A lot of women are being vanished. And when you say that you don't outline, there has to be some sort of... Uh, how do you find direction from 1,000 words to 64,000 words or at the end of a chapter to know wh- where this darn thing's going to end? Do you, or do you no, work backwards? I, I don't. I don't outline heavily. I mean, there are some authors who really know exactly, by the time they write, they know exactly what's happening in each chapter. I do plan, um, but I don't outline in that kind of detail because I know I'm going to change it. Because for me, I find it interesting discovering things about an author. I mean, in the previous book to this, Wrong Crowd, there's a Russian hit man called Grigory, um, who started off as a minor character but developed a life of his own, and he really works. But I never knew that was going to happen until I started writing him and breathed life into him and got his voice and the clothes he wore and what his past was. And he does something really surprising and dramatic in the book that I wouldn't have seen coming until I started writing him. So what I do is I plan X amount. I might fill out two large notepads. Actually, I do it longhand when I plan. And then I know where I'm going at the beginning of chapter one, two, but it changes. So then I will just I'll write one and two, then plan three and four, then write them and so on. Or I'll just let it flow if it feels right. 
When when do you, when do you get your ending? Does that come near the top or or near the middle? When do I get my no, I I never I never know the ending until really I'm writing it. I know how I'm going to conclude the novel. I know whether the criminal's going to be caught or what. I roughly know what's going to happen. But I never actually write it in its fullness until I'm right there. Got it. I got it. I find it fascinating. So, so to lay this this planning over over Savage Highway, take us through that journey. Yeah. Well, uh, as I said, I'd written the story. It'd been around for a while, and I kept going back in it, looking at it, and thinking, "What should I do with that?" And then I thought, you know, let's see if I can turn it into something longer. I mean, I'm looking at files here in my um, in my office of, of Savage Highway, and I, it, you know, they, I went through several edits. I even in the end printed it out and went over it again longhand. Um, but the, the core characters are this drifter, Patty, who has basically has been raped. I'm not going to give any of the plot away. No, no. And she's in this area, and she's looking for her missing sister. And she encounters a journalist called Johnny, who's a good guy, Johnny Sullivan. Um, and he is out there looking for a story. He's heard about the disappearances. But there are two very corrupt cops in the area. Um, Franklin Norman is probably the worst of the two. He's described as a man whose face is unreadable, who has one eye that is lapis blue and the other mantis green, as if two men inhabit him. <laughs> oh, God. And um, he gets up to some really nasty stuff. And Johnny discovers that years previously, a serial killer called Donald Lake had um, escaped while in transit between prisons and had police help. And the truckers are somehow involved with the disappearances. So it's really these two characters and then a couple more up against the cops trying to find out what's going on. There's a, a mis mysterious Mexican called Valentino de la Cruz, who is also looking for his missing sister, who starts an affair with the wife of a recently murdered businessman who's well funds the police in the area. So obviously they come under scrutiny. So it's a sort of the battle of you know the small guys against the big guys, police corruption, law enforcement, justice, um, and it's very much a novel about predation. It, it, interesting. Should 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 this be the first book? Uh, because as you know, I, I haven't read read you yet, and I want to start. Is, is this is this a good beginning, or should I start someplace else? Um. What? Uh, okay. So run that past me again. Well, I want to start. I've, I've, I've not read your stuff. I love talking mm -hmm. to you. I've talked to you a couple times now. I want to start yeah. reading your stuff. Do I start with Savage Highway? Okay. Or well, is there, okay. there someplace else? You liked, what you like to read? What do you like? Oh, I like. You a, go into. We like sixteen-year-old twins. Well, <laughs> yeah, but I don't read them unless it's written no. on their. <laughs> yeah, on their forehead. No, yeah. And and by the by the way. By the way, oh, I, it, 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 somehow edit that out because I don't want anybody to know about that. And so, um, uh, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. And it's not even that's not funny. Um, what do I like? I, I mean, I, I uh, God, somebody asked me what my favorite book was the other day, and, and out comes The Good Earth by Pearl S. Buck. So you go figure. What do I like? <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, well, I mean, you certainly. I think. You, uh, you may well enjoy Savage Highway. I do think it's a good book. I know I wrote it, but 
um, I think it is a good a good narrative. Bell may add to that. I always say to anyone who wants to try me, One Lost Summer. It's a much gentler book. I, 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 that novel kind of wrote itself mysteriously. It was an absolute joy to write. Um, and it was as if I was being dictated to and just really writing down the words. Um, and it's much more a Hitchcockian psychological thriller. It's much gentler. There's no murder in it. There's an act of manslaughter. But it's, um, it's actually creepy in a different way because it's psychologically creepy. It's about a filmmaker called Rex Allen who moves into an area um, in a heat wave and finds himself living next door to a very beautiful woman called Evangeline Glass, who he is mm. convinced is not Evangeline Glass, but a woman named Coral. And he starts spying on her, discovers she has a lover, and he blackmails her into playing a game. He wants her to meet him once a week and pretend she's Coral. And things start to unravel fast, and it seems that there's more to this than either of them realize. And it leads to absolute disaster for everyone concerned. Wow. And, <laughs> and the joke That's... proceeds from there. Uh, yeah. I got it. Yeah. Well, when you say Hitchcockian, you 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 kind of draw me in, and when you say gentler and no grisly murder, uh, manslaughter, that kind of draws me in. Uh, uh, so uh, high of high interest to me to, to maybe start there and then move to Savage Highway. But, uh, but yeah, for those... that's a good one. Last summer, yeah, try that. Yeah. Now that's the one that uh, GM Ford was raving about. He loved that. One. Oh really? Okay. Interesting. That's a great. Well, thank him from me. Uh, I got a question for you because I ran into a situation, <laughs> writer to writer here, that I'd never had happen before. I'm writing this novel, and I have these bad characters of the the bad ones, mm-hmm. and suddenly it occurs to me something I for years and years, and that is how anger works. If you're in your car and someone rear-ends you, smashes you. You're going to have an anger response. You're going to get out. You're going to be mad as hell at the person who hits you until you see that the reason they hit you is because someone rear-ended them. Your anger then goes to the next car. But if you see that there is a line of cars stretching all the way to the horizon, (laughs) there is no specific place to put that resentment, that personalized anger, and it dissipates. Well, the reason these people are... Cruel, evil, mean, bad, and nasty, they were rear-ended. And someone rear-ended the person that rear-ended them. And it goes on into multi-generations. So I started having compassion for my villains. I didn't want them to be punished. They're being punished enough being villains. So how do I get these people out of it? How do you get them out of? How do I get them out of being punished? I've developed a great amount of compassion for my villains. It's going back to the car analogy. I think that it's, and the anger thing. I mean, writers will make readers angry. You're going to feel outrage. I mean, James Lee Burke, who I think is a brilliant, brilliant author, is extremely good at placing rubbish show in situations that outrage you to the point where you are going to justify the mechanisms, the revenge tragedy, and let him go in and shoot people in the spine and mm-hmm. throw them down burning stairwells. Because uh, he's, he's built up great antagonists. I mean, you're talking about the villains and the antagonists. Now, the, the car thing, before the anger, there's a flash of fear and imp- impotence. You, 
can't mm-hmm. control it. And then comes the anger. The anger's re-empowering. So you're yeah, angry. Anger's you want to never... point this at someone. But then you can't because there's 100 cars in there. You're right. I don't think there's a lot of, lot of case studies psychologically that show, obviously, it's atavistic. It's, a, it's like James Joyce's story, Counterpoints. He writes about this in Dubliners, that, you know, the... The boy at school is being bullied and he bullies another boy and the, the, the father's being messed around at work so he slaps the wife and the wife argues with the sister and it goes on and on and on and on. Equally, I do think there are some people who don't necessarily have that, who are just actually bad. Um, I don't mean this in a religious sense, but I think there are some people with DNA that has wired them up and you can't necessarily find any specific things. They didn't have it that bad. You also have people who right, went through right. terrible things and, and come out with incredibly virtuous characters. Well, you see, my, the, the killer in my first novel, Puzzle Rising, has not been punished. Um, I partly did that because I think there's a sequel to the story, which I think there is. But also, um, in a strange way, I think because of the political corruption represented, um, there was a certain sense of not a moral vindication, but a plot vindication for his actions against politicians. You could simply write an amoral ending. Ben Johnson, the Jacobean playwright, who I think was one of the greatest playwrights who ever lived and who is not well known enough because he was competing with William Shakespeare, wrote notoriously amoral endings to his plays. The Alchemist is about a group of servants who have been left in charge of the house by their master who set up a contract on the local greedy, nasty people in the area, trying to sell them the philosopher's stone, um, practicing alchemy. But really, they're running a knocking shop, and they're ripping all these people off. And the master comes back and finds a man locked in the toilet with a rat stuffed in his mouth, dildos, feet on the walls. And instead of saying, right, off to the court, he says, where's my cut? And that's how the play ends. Um, so you could represent it as an amoral universe or you could if you are sympathetic with your characters if you feel compassion um you could actually give that background you have to you show the actions so let the reader judge them give the background bring in the sympathy factor and remember passion i mean these characters may be acting from passion passion originally meant getting your spirit through your own suffering so compassion is the ability to feel and empathize with that it may well be, a, well be a good thing. It, it could be very interesting. Yeah, well, what, uh, what I finally uh, decided to do is exact, pretty much exactly what you say. There's enough that you know how these people wound up in this situation. We also have another villain who is slightly disconnected from the action, who's uh, uh, insulated from, from the dirty work, shall we say. Uh, he is recalcitrant and unrepentant, and just an ass uh, because of his social position because too big to fail I mean yeah you could show it that that is how they've been programmed to end up um, equally I don't know what genre you want to write it in but you could run it as a sort of black satire I mean have you ever read American Psycho by Brett Easton Ellis saw the movie well it's a very fine book I mean Ellis writes extremely well. It's the only book I nearly didn't finish because even I found some of it hard to stomach. And that says a lot because I've got a very strong stomach. But there is no punishment and there is no moral framework in it. And I think Ellis wrote it as a black satire. So if you have specific targets that you're actually satirizing, you can can also make it amoral in that way because you're not going to come down with Mm -hmm. some sort of 
validation at the end of it. Yeah, well, that's a pretty, you're pretty much validating what I was thinking. Sometimes I need that, you know, because I wonder, am I, is Uncle Crazy really out here on a limb? <laughs> As the rabbi says about says about Torah, if Torah is the tree of life, we could go out on a limb. Because you're you're digging into, you're, you're creating a sort of archaeology, an excavation of your characters and their motivations, and that obviously will give them more depth. I mean, I think there's a lot of crime fiction, if this is crime fiction, which sanitizes mm. crime, and you have very clear-cut good guys and bad guys. And I mean, there are some writers I've read, and I thought, these the good guys are pissing me off so much, I just want them. What is it about what them that pisses, pisses me off? off? There, there's, there's a certain group of um, formula fictions which are well-written entertaining, but they always bring it back to this really schmaltzy family picture, which is oh. you know, really, it's like, it's, you know, the obedient wife and the dutiful husband, and, and it kind of, I think, oh, my God, this is like, oh, they're so tedious. Me. They're so, you know. Like in fact, I wrote a line in, uh, in I think it's in, uh, in Headlock, where I said, if, if this had been the an end of an episode of Fury, the horse would have laughed. There's a right. TV show in America called Fury, and at the end, it was always like that. It was Gramps and the kid and the horse, and they would laugh, and the horse would win, and all is right with the world. And he's like, oh, my God. Right. You know? And there's a, a scene like that in the book, and the narrator says to the audience, if this was an episode of Fury, the horse would laugh. You know, that's, he felt that way about the scene. I think that there's a certain line of thought that when you're representing crime, you have certain duties to represent certain family situations. I think that's absolute bunkum. I don't think that's art. It's like we don't, I mean, I used to watch the Waltons as a kid, but I don't want to, you know, I don't want to write scenes in which everyone's saying goodnight, Jim Bob. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. It's funny. You're quoting the wall. You're referencing the Waltons, and Burl's referencing Fury. And uh, I'll come in somewhere in the middle at Bonanza. Right. <laughs> Do that. Yeah. Or how about your at your age would be Johnny Jupiter. Well, okay. It's just that but Bonanza fascinates me that the father can be four years older than his eldest son. It's just it's yeah. Always, is that amazing? Yes. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's true. I mean. It's these sort of, um, I think that there is, in publishing, a a level of social engineering going on. And I think you can see it in the young adult movement, um, in which, you know, they can kiss, but there shouldn't be any heavy intimations of sex. And I think you can see it in the, the more extreme examples of formula writing, where only certain family scenes are good because this is if you fill people's heads with this this is how people are going to behave and we want people to behave like this because they are going to be dumb and they're going to buy more of these books and they're also going to believe what the politicians say so we're going to be popular it's like you remember when all those banned lyrics came out and we were talking about Zappa the other day and Zappa you know started making fun of them and it was absolutely ridiculous because you drive something underground you're actually giving it more energy as William Blakey very well. Why don't Um, people understand that? That it's the same whether it's drugs or alcohol or abortions or pygmies on the loose with with weapons. Uh, There was a study done. I'm going to get on my little soapbox here because I did a lot of research on this. There was a study done on the relationship between embezzlement, gambling, you know, and people who embezzle money. Well, it turns out that it doesn't matter whether you're embezzling because of gambling or 
because you got a mistress on the side, it comes down not to what the thing is, but whether or not it has to be secret. If it's illegal, right. that's where you have right. problems. When you can say, hey, I went to the illegal casino, but I got a problem, no problem. But if it's illegal Absolutely. to have a casino and you're going to one, then you can't talk about it. And it's the same with whatever it is, prostitution, drugs, whatever. Absolutely. I mean, uh, first of all, you drive underground, so you put it in the hands of the criminals. Uh, mm -hmm. You black market it. And then you've got the police corruption cutting a bit off the side. And then you've got people stigmatized because they think, oh, I'm dirty, I'm filthy, I'm a gambler, I'm ashamed, I can't speak to my wife, I I need to see a psychiatrist. And it's, it's absolute rubbish. But there is, I don't know why... I don't know. I think a lot of people aren't prepared to really investigate the evidence enough because they're morally offended by certain things. They're offended by gambling or drugs or prostitution or sex or so on and so forth. And the world is full of very zealous crusaders who want to, you know, shut down things and complain about them and be offended. Um, you know, we had one called Mary Whitehouse in this country who spent her whole life complaining about a nipple shot on TV or a swear word, and I think, you know, come on, seriously. I mean, she wakes up every day looking to be offended. Sorry, yeah, people have no trouble if they listen to our show, they have no trouble finding something. I'm sure, I'm sure, but you know, it's like you remember the um, the obscenity trials when William Burroughs and Henry Miller were dragged through the court, so on and so forth, and Miller needed a heavy edit, but he was a fine, fine stylist. And Miller said, you know, we should be you know, offending people. You know, it's important. I think someone just murdered Howard. I'm not Howard. talking about setting out to do so, but if you're, <laughs> if you're commenting on a culture, it's, imp it's impossible to tick all the boxes. I mean, a lot of the literary prizes, like the Booker Prize, look for a tick box list that is going to please the academics and... Uh, pri primarily the mi middle classes, but the middle classes with a working class conscience. So they don't want to feel that they're too middle class, but really they are because they're looking at the working classes through their newspapers, which is often the Guardian because it's a little bit lefty. And they can go to a show or a theatre show and, and they can say, yes, and it was about a such and such ethnic group and this ethnic group. And they'll feel morally superior and better about it, but they won't actually get... The whole gist of it, the importance of any play or drama or novel is the narrative commentary and the engagement with the reader and the engagement with the subconscious mind and the commentary on the human condition. Not, it's not like saying, look, I've acquired a new Gucci handbag and don't you like my heels? And this is my <laughs> argument. You know, you know what I'm saying? Yes. Well, the other thing about reading and reading comprehension, and it's, it's not simply a matter of of decoding the words. Now, see, my I have a son who is very high functioning, autistic, but reading was always uh, it was just decoding the words. And he said to me one right. day, "I find it rather sad, Dad." He said, "That you are an author and I can't read your books because he could only decode the words. He could not uh, personalize and visualize." which is the right. process of reading. You're, maybe you're seeing the movie in your mind. You're lost to the story. You're not aware of, your, right. of the process of decoding words. But for him, that's what reading was, was just decoding the word. He knew what he was missing. He knew he was missing something. Right. So is he strong at math? Uh, yeah, he's okay at math. He's, very, very, of course, very good at organizing things, <laughs> as most right. artistic people are. 
And Horace has that phenomenal right. memory where he could recite to you right. the salary cap of every team in the NBA because he heard it once on ESPN. Right. <laughs> the brain is just wired up totally differently, isn't it? Yeah. It's uh, In some ways, it's much like being on psychedelics full-time because there's you don't have the filter. That's why physical sensations can be overwhelming being hugged. I've got to pipe up here. That's that's. Uh, I've never heard it described that way, and uh, fascinating uh, because it. Uh, not that I was the, the king of all LSD by any stretch, but 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 yeah, I sure know a lot about it. And and uh, me too. <laughs> yeah, well, you know. I mean, I just I, I didn't uh, I didn't do what Timothy Leary did. I just knew Timothy Leary. But it it it's it it, it you know I, I could imagine being in that state. 24-7. For the same concept as procrastination. People procrastinate because they feel they have no control over their lives. If they have no control over what they're supposed to do, at least they can control whether or not it gets done. It's an illusion of control, an illusion of power and influence. Where with, mm-hmm. uh, yep. with autistic, they can organize and structure all the physical things around them because everything else is chaos, you know. Right. The, the impulses. Right. I live in chaos. Well, you see, it, 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 we we really have very little control, and I think we all we all play tricks on ourselves, um, whether it is by procrastinating or by yelling at your staff or by writing lists. Some people write long shopping lists, you know, um, or organizing the shop drawer if you're at your sock drawer if you're autistic. Um, but ultimately, we we really have very little control, and I think when you reflect on that. It's quite frightening, um, and you know, equally, people people have these habits, these routines. In a sense, you can see that there are seeds of this, tiny little seeds of this in most people. But in a fully fledged autistic person, it's developed into a tree rather than a, a little shrub. You know, we can all have days where we think, "Okay, I'm going to sort out that shelf." You know, but you stop after mm-hmm. a few hours. And it's interesting where that becomes the manifestation of character or the manifestation of identity, because ultimately, yeah, we are surrounded by a lot of chaos. It's true, and we do have very little control. And even if you're flying first class, they can lose your luggage, and you can end up <laughs> yeah. hitting a, you know, you can hit hit a storm and end up being stranded somewhere else at a hotel. Um, and I think this is where your humour has to come into play. You know, um, it's. Uh, I remember flying to to the States and my wife some years ago, and we'd had the worst journey of all times. And finally, when we were due to land, they turned the plane around and said, we can't land, we're dumping you at Syracuse. But check out, we're going to be leaving again in half an hour. They took off without us. And I thought, all right, you know, I'm going to go and have a beer. And I met a guy at a bar. He heard my accent. We were talking sport. And then we were talking Frank Zappa. And he's a real Zappa freak, this guy. He's a DJ. Um... And we started singing, and we had a medley, and we had pizza. And I'm still in touch with this guy, and he's bought a lot of my books, and I had a night in Syracuse, and I thought, so what? You know, <laughs> um, no. turn it into an adventure, you know. To be stuck in Syracuse is, is, is a charm. It, it depends on uh, – <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm from about uh, – what two and a half hours west of Syracuse and Buffalo, and, and okay. Syracuse, Syracuse is the Buffalo, the, kind of the same. Is it like being stuck at a mobile with the Memphis Blues again? Well, it's kind of no, <laughs> no. In in Memphis, you've at least got the Blues. In Syracuse, uh, you, you've got uh, you're lucky to find a DJ at a bar with a beer. So. Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, uh, Richard, you 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 really scored that that, he locked, that one. Okay, yeah, you he locked out. He's a nice guy too. I'm sure. Um, it, I'm he sure. emails me from time to time with Frank Zappa lyrics like uh, "Just Me and the Pygmy Pony," and then says, uh. "I read your latest one. I'm really glad I met you at cocktail hour before reading your evisceration scenes." <laughs> Let me. Uh, is he still in Syracuse? I think so. Yeah, yeah. He's still in wow. Syracuse. Wow. Yeah. Boy, that's yeah. a long longevity for you. That's yeah. <laughs> That's that's stuck in Syracuse. Yeah. Yeah, there is yeah. a is a college <laughs> yeah. and then snow. Right. <laughs> Those are yeah. the two exports. This is in the summer, luckily. What excitement! So, uh, so, so where uh, do you shoot? I, how I'm old? Yeah, excuse me. I, I got to ask you a question. How how old are you, Richard? How old am I? I'm fifty-two, yeah. sir. Oh, so you still have the energy behind the writing. I'm I'm sixty-eight, and okay, I I have this thing creeping up on me that Leslie Charter has referred to where he said it used to be I would sit down at the typewriter and I thought everything I wrote was brilliant because it always got published because the older I got the more critical I became of my own work and so finally I said I better stop before I screw this all up there's that temptation to rewrite and rewrite and if you rewrite enough there's nothing left I, I write it the next day I read it, if I might do one gloss, you know, and then I move on. Because if I stay on it, I'll kill it. Yeah, th- there is a fine line. Who who said that, The um, that you were quoting someone there? Uh, Leslie Charteris, creator of the same. Okay. Yeah, you see, there's a great uh, line in an Albert Camus novel, um, The Plague, um, which I had to do in French at A-level at school. But there's a character in there called Father Panelou who's trying to write a novel. But he wants to write the perfect first sentence. And in the whole year <laughs> of this novel, he never gets past the first sentence. Um, and what you have to do, I always say to people, just write the bloody thing. Just put it down. Go back and edit it. No one's watching you. you, know, you it's in the privacy of a room or privacy of your house. Write it, get it down, make it as good as you can. But if you let perfectionism come in, it is a crippler. It will absolutely cripple you. And there's a point where you have to put it in the oh, post. Yeah. And there are going to be editors who are going to crawl all over it and say, you need to change this, that, and the other. And there are going to be people who are going to hate it. It may be good, they're going to hate it, and people are going to love it. It may be crap. But, you know, but you're right. Well, that, you can, there's a point where you'll kill it. Do, do, either yeah, of you guys, do either of you guys ever write for uh, just uh, hardcore for the editor, you know, knowing your editor and knowing your critics and knowing your and then then is your audience last? I mean, are you first? No, no, because because sod the bloody critics and and you know I'm sorry I'm right I'm ultimately I'm writing for the the people I know who like what I do and exactly exactly I'm just That's writing for Hamilton. What is the writer trying to do, and did he or she achieve it? Not, did it offend me, or did it upset me, or so on. There are some good reviewers out there, some lousy ones, but for me, they exist really quite low down in the food chain. Um, The artist is the person with the talent. And, you know, um, again, it's a predatory world. And Elmore Leonard said some of the best stuff he wrote was when he was just having fun, and I agree with him, you know. But that's going to come through. I'll tell you a story. I don't know if you're familiar with Philip Margolin, author who's a big bestseller, was gone but not forgotten. It was a murder mystery. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Very clever. I really enjoyed that book. And uh, I met him. In fact, the first uh, short story he ever sold, he sold to the same mystery magazine, which I thought was kind of ironic. But uh, he told me that when he got an advance of $3 million, so they've given an advance of $3 million, 
And then he gets a call from the editor who says, are you ready to get to work? He says, well, what do you mean? He says, well, we paid you $3 million because we see a diamond here, but it's still a lump of coal. So get ready to take some notes. First of all, chapter six is your new chapter one, because whatever the strongest chapter is in the book is going to be the first chapter, even if it's number six. You know, so don't worry about your first chapter, your first line, because that may not be your first chapter. And it may not be your first line. You know, you can't be sure. Yeah. It's just, you got about another year's worth of work ahead of you. But we believe when you've done this other year's worth of work, it'll be worth the three million we paid you, and you'll have a bestseller. Well, it sure as hell did. And a movie, and, uh, you know, it all went great. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's, and that's, uh, for that money, that's, okay that's fine that's acceptable that's a great advance and you know you don't get those advances these days you know you're not going to see seven figures on the Paul Abdul book is that what you're saying to me you're talking uh, me off the ledge highly unlikely my friend House of Secrets by Lowell Caulfield when he first wrote that book for Kinsman in hardback I think he got a $50,000 advance now you're lucky mm. to get twelve five, and they don't come out in hardback anymore yeah it's true I mean Amazon's changed everything <clears throat> And it's exciting, but also I think the publishers still really don't know how to recover from it, and they're not making no, the same don't. kind of money. No. No, it's, it's very difficult. Being on the end of the business, I am, and that, uh, I've got clients that that, uh, that write books, and that deals with you know many of the certainly deal with the agents and then the the publishers, and it's a different world. It's a world today that that Richard, even before you started doing this. Uh, it's it's changed so much, and, and uh, uh, the commitment it takes to be you guys is amazing. I mean, it's a and yes, we, we discussed and you know you enjoy your work and that's that, that's all good, and that'll come through and ultimately pay. But but at the same time, the advances are ridiculously low. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, if doing, at all. Well, yeah, even uh, you know, look, I am working a major biography of a of a, a very high profile individual in the television business and the story is great and the stories are great and they're historic when it comes to american television and you would think that they would be lined up around the block to write a check you would th- I, I would think that um and uh the answer is no really yeah the answer is no it's, and, it's sad I mean, it's you have to push and push, and I think you know to be a writer, you need to you need the love. You, you're not as my you know the great Elmore Leonard said, you know, you're not going to write a billion words to find your own voice if you didn't love doing it, and you've got to be able to write. And I wrote for years on my own, so I wasn't looking for you know recognition necessarily. And I would always write, um, even if publishing folded tomorrow, I'd still keep doing it. It's what I do. Right. But you've got to have a thick skin too, because you can have people ripping you off and imagination and resilience and resourcefulness and stamina and you know patience and you i do believe you need to be prolific you're going to hit the targets because you make your money in other ways other than the advances i mean i mean my agent is great but he'll sometimes knock something back and say that's not commercial and um, i recently placed in fact i placed two things that he didn't want to handle with a very good Canadian publisher called Xstarters Editions, who sent me an advance. I nearly fell off my chair when I saw the check. Oh, this is incredible. This is great. Um, a very well-respected Canadian publisher, um, including a science fiction novel about four genders, which I don't think has been done before, which is quite interesting. Um, 
but you get the, the spin-offs, uh, foreign rights. I've been lucky. I've had a lot of foreign rights, so translations. Film rights are really the, the thing you want as a writer. Um, and, you know, I get invited out to places to teach, you know, master classes in creative writing. So I get paid for that. But, you, you know, I work extremely hard, as I'm sure you both do. Um, and I think when you are working for yourself, which we ultimately are, you do work harder. Well, it's, it's it, you know, working. people ask, you know, you work for yourself, you have your own business. Uh, that must be amazing. I go, it is except at 3 o'clock in the morning, I'm looking in the mirror and I see my boss. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're working for that's your employees. No, that's no fun. <laughs> and your boss is saying you forgot to do this, and yeah. Oh, the list that, goes. The, the, the list is deeper than any list that anybody oh, has yeah. in the company. It's the deepest yeah. list there is. Yeah, yeah. Well, the other thing responsible for it. I mean, I've been in situations where I have three computers on my desk, three different books on three different computers, and I'm swiveling in my chair uh, because there's deadlines. You do, you do, and you do, you know, every so often you need a break and you need to kick back. I mean, I think Stephen King was right, <clears throat> right every day. It's not always possible to every write every day. I don't write if I'm getting up at 2 in the morning to fly to the States, but I, do, I have been known to sit in a cafe at the airport writing, jotting in a pad, seeing an interesting character, making a note. It's it's what you do. I mean, Bo, you know, you've written the the same books. I mean, I grew up watching Simon Templar and Roger Moore. Did you see the a TV series that he did of the Saint? Oh, of course, I have it. I have uh, for write a Saint to complete history. I I saw virtually everything. The only thing I hadn't seen was one of the French films, and I hadn't seen Louis Hayward in uh, Saint's Girl Friday until after that book came out. In fact, my editor said, how come you don't devote as much time to Saints Girl Friday as you do the other movies? And it, well, because I can't find the damn thing. <laughs> well, you know, we write, so, I mean, that's slightly different to what I write. I mean, I loved that growing up. I mean, but you tell tell Howard, what did you what did you make of Savage Highway? Because you sent me some interesting emails when you were reading it. Uh, and I was telling him, I said, remember you were a kid, if you were, like, curled up on the couch and your favorite horror movie was on, or maybe it was a marathon you may have been freaked out but at the same time you were really comfortable i said that was what reading savage highway is like it's like oh my god, oh my god. i felt so in so safely terrified <laughs> if i could put it that way and i sent you some emails where i asked you if what was going on was internal rather than external this right. was it's, it's in the psyche of someone's mind because you had all these elements of areas that are dangerous, places you don't go, where you stand back, where you're trapped into repetitive movements like that Twilight Zone episode with William Shatner where he's in the cafe and you got that, you know, a uh, little high van and he can never leave town when all he really has to do is get in his car and leave. Uh, it, it, I find it interesting. In a sense, um, I think there was a guy called, yeah, Paul DeMann wrote a book called Blindness and Insight, interpreting fictions and how, in a way, the reader brings their own interpretation to a fiction. That's okay. And sometimes you can misread an author. But I hadn't written it with that in mind. But when you said it, I thought, actually, symbolically, yeah, symbolically, that entrapment is there. Because I, I struggled to see how they would escape. And I thought, well, there has to be a geophysical boundary here. And there was, and I put it in the novel. 
But a lot of it is in the head. And I often, um, I've often said to my wife traveling around the States, when I go into some of these really old diners that are in the 50s, I said to her, I'm having a David Lynch moment. And yeah. my David Lynch moments usually comprise either of the waitress spilling coffee on my lap or the giant walking in and talking to me about a new work of art or something very bizarre <laughs> happens. Uh, uh, seven sets of twins walk through the door and start tap, tap dancing or <laughs> yeah. doves start yeah. flying out of the mirrors. <laughs> and I'm not taking yes, drugs, seriously. Yeah, yeah I would in that case, but uh, you're right. And I even have had cherry pie at that real diner, which is in... Uh, uh, up by Suquamish Pass in Seattle. Twin oh, really? Okay, it's yeah. It's a real place. Yeah, Twin Peaks. I think Lynch is a brilliant, brilliant director. I mean, fantastic. I mean, genius, probably. Um, but it is that that sense of the parallel universe. Um, there are places you go to and you think, this is actually a stage set, it's a facade. If I, if I go into that church, it's not going to be a church at all. It's going to be something else. You know, I don't believe it. <laughs> yeah. There's a movie uh, where a comet is going over, and it's one of these string theory movies where because the comet's going over, if you go out of the house, when you come back in the house, it may not be the same house you walked out of. It's the same house, but right. in a different version of reality. I love that movie. Exactly, exactly. And, well, of course, you know, the double is an interesting concept. In fact, that is going to feature in the next one coming out by Wild Blue in a couple of months, um, The Pure and the Hated, which is my Vermont novel because... Um, I spend a lot of time in Vermont up there, um, and so we, you know, that is all part of it. Um, so we got to say goodbye. So I want to plug your book so people can buy it. Can't wait to buy it. I'm, I'm definitely buying it. And Howard, uh, um, please let me know. Bill, give my email address to Howard, and Howard, please um, let me know what you think. And when I'm out in your neck of the woods, um, we can buffalo and buffalo, as Little Feet sang. And um, <laughs> all right, thanks a lot, Mike. Richard Godwin's Savage Highway. Get it now from Amazon.com. You can get it in Kindle. Richard Godwin. You can get it in paperback. <laughs> Thanks for listening. And in Richard's honor, here's some Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention. to get sick from watching my TV. I've been checking out the news until my eyeballs fail to see. I mean to say that every day is just another rotten mess. Oh no. And when it's gonna change, my friend, is anybody's guess. So I'm watching and I'm waiting. Every time I hear him say There's no way to delay that trouble coming every day There's no way to delay that trouble coming every day Wednesday I watch the riot I seen the cops out on the street I watched them throwing rocks and stuff And choking in the heat 
I listen to reports about the whiskey passing around. I seen the smoke and fire in the market burning down. Watch while everybody on the street would take a turn to stomp and smash and bash and crash and slash and bust and burn. Humor belong in music? I think so. It belongs in everyday life unless uh, the Republicans...